All right, guys. Well, like we said, we already missed freaking a uh, five minute conversation that we had on <laughs> treadmill desks. But uh, yeah, welcome back. Another episode of our uh, coaches roundtable. So excited to have you guys on and in chat. So uh, I think, Brandon, you were just about to tell us a little bit about what you've been up to the last little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So just a little background for the audience. Right now, my man Jeff's on a treadmill desk. So I'm feeling accomplished first and foremost, because I was one of the first people that, you're not one of the first people, but I was someone that was a big advocate for treadmill desks, for walking, for energy flux. And the thing is, like I've shared with Jeff, he's actually reached out to me about models of treadmills. You know, Jeremiah has one, a treadmill desk right in his home, his home office now. And this is something that I've been utilizing for years. And I was just sharing with them that there was a time in my corporate career when I was working within the supplement industry, and I got regular, uh, to an office structure. I wasn't traveling for an extended period of time, and I was actually working in the research and development department of a high-level supplement company. And so I was doing, I was literally reading studies all day. And so it was kind of like my heaven, but at the same time, having ADD, like I'm being seated without windows. I was in a very um, secluded area of our office structure. And so within that, I was suffering cognitively. And so there are so many benefits that you can get from movement in addition to having cognitive demanding tasks. So there is some literature and some research that shows an enhancement in memory retention and memory form formation from walking um, when you're getting bouts of uh, information. So they've looked at actually, you know, listening to information and having better memory retention within that. They've also looked at the act of, and this is something actually Andrew Huberman has, has looked at and has also brought brought on a researcher. I believe her name is Wendy Suzuki. Uh, she's a researcher out of Stanford, and she's looked at the ability to upregulate learning and memory formation and retention through the use of either doing exercise, so low intensity like aerobic work, like a walk, previous to learning and after learning. And here's the thing: when you move, when you get into aerobic exercise, you upregulate catecholamine release. So within that, we see upregulations in neurotransmitters and hormones like noradrenaline, adrenaline, dopamine. And then also we see some of nootropic factors like brain-derived nootropic factors. So these are things that are going to help enhance cognition, enhance focus, uh, help with memory formation. So this is something I personally do when I take on lectures, when I'm looking at continuing education courses. Um, and many of times, you know, uh, previous to how we do podcasts now where we're actually on video, there was a, a long time that I jumped on, you know, a podcast with Jeff or Jeremiah and I didn't have the video at all. So I'd be walking whether it be outside or on my treadmill desk. And they had no idea, but I was doing my thing because that is one way that I've been able to retain information better and offer also be able to, um, I guess, because of having ADD also, it helps me manage that, that hyperactivity in addition. So my man, Jeff is going to be extra sharp. I'm expecting big things from you today, my man. <laughs> uh oh, well, yeah. So if anybody, cause I do post the videos of this now. So if anybody sees me like going back and forth, I'm just on, on a treadmill, but I was telling Brandon too, and, and Jeremiah that, I just like it because it. I, I do feel like when I'm moving more, it just helps me really just, I, I don't know, like, I feel like I think better. And I'm the same way. I feel like at the end of the day, when I can tell if I haven't moved a lot. By the end of the day, I'm just like, I just get all this. Like, I feel like when I was younger, I never really understood what that was. But now I just realize that like, that's just a lot of like built up like anxiety and I just have to move. Right. I think a lot of people are like, what, you know, what do I need to do to get rid of that? I think the best thing you can do is just move, especially if you're somebody that, you know, hasn't moved very much. And then the other thing I like about it too, is, you know, uh, like I said, off air, Jeremiah, he lives in Arizona, so this doesn't matter to him, but you know, it's nice to have that walking treadmill for like the bad weather days. Right. Cause I Absolutely. do like to, I do like to get outside when I can, even if it is a little cold, but it is nice to have it when it's like snowing or, or raining out or, or like you said too, my, honestly, my favorite thing is if I do have to watch a video for like some continuing education, that's the best. I love that. That's, that's my favorite thing to do. So I yeah, love I, it. And I, yeah. 
I do the same thing. And the thing is that I can completely relate to you because I'm out in the Northeast. So honestly, I just got back two days ago from Punta Cana. So it was beautiful. But generally, you know, I went from 83 degree weather to 32 degree weather and snowing when I arrived two days ago. And so completely different, you know, um, I guess ends of the spectrum in terms of weather. But a lot of times it is inconvenient to get out there. And I am someone that I like the discomfort of getting out in the morning and getting, you know, sun exposure as well as getting out into the cold. It helps wake me up. But I, I tend to do now, I, you know, I've had multiple treadmill desks at all the residences that I've lived at. And I just, within the last year, I moved to another location, to another house. And so recently within the, um, this past winter, I bought, you know, I purchased another treadmill desk just for the convenience of it, but it's nice. It's nice because then I don't have to, for all my 10 minute walks, I don't have to jump outside. Or if I have a call to do, or I have, you know, a video or a lecture to watch, I don't have to worry about, especially when you're outdoors, like you can't get all those things. You can put a podcast on, or you can listen to someone like a audio tape or an audio book. But a lot of times when it, it takes looking at both, you know, when I'm going through lectures, like I'm, I'm taking a, you know, continuing education courses right now, I'm looking at a study on one monitor, I'm watching, you know, or I'm listening to the lecturer himself go through it. And then I'm looking things up on my laptop. So I need multiple screens. I need multiple abilities and I can't do that outside. So it just, the convenience factor, it really makes for a, a really good working environment. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it makes you so much more efficient. That's like same thing. What if I'm reading now, like I, I can't absorb things very well, like listening to an audiobook, I need to read, but then it's like, I have to sit here and read. So now I, I walk on that and I read, or I'm working and I read and especially with that. I mean, like, similarly, that's like, I feel like it adds at least like another hour to my workday that I would normally be like outside walking. And that's been great. The problem I've been running into is my, st- I keep accidentally like going way over my steps. Like I'm at almost 15 K right now um, and it's <laughs> two here. We're gonna so have we're gonna to have even to... increase your food all the more. If you I know that's literally what I was. That's literally what I was. Just I'm gonna get thinking. you an IV so... drip so we get some liquid nutrition while you're on that treadmill. <laughs> so that's the only problem I'm running into. But yeah, I don't know why I didn't grab one sooner. Well, I make I make fun of Jeremiah for being in Arizona, which I'm jealous. But you, I mean, you spent time in Nebraska, so you understand how it is too. I mean, it's probably even worse up there. So you understand, you know, the cold weather and how tough it can be to to get outside in the winter. I guess. I guess that brings up a good point. Uh, you know, do you, do you feel like you could overdo the steps, Brandon? Like, I guess what, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Like, do you feel like there's kind of that point of diminishing returns? Like if somebody gets a walking desk, you know, like in Jeremiah's situation, you know, he's at 15,000. Do you find that, you know, you can overdo it at some point or what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, recently I've been getting this question more and more, and I think it comes from the fact that I've spoken a lot about the benefits of movement, about increasing need, about energy flux, living a high energy flux life. And I have to, and I always try to make caveats. If you guys ever, you you guys have engaged with me so much, I'm constantly putting in like these asterisks into my conversations where I'm like, listen, like this applies to this subsect of the population or this type of person. However, I do think that we have to be cautionary about every tool within our toolbox in coaching, whether it be a refeed or diet break or a linear dieting strategy, whatever it may be, or even something like walking or things like that. There they are tools and they can be utilized in a proper way. And they can also be misutilized and misapplied. And here's the thing. You know, what I have found is I haven't worked with individuals. So I'm going to go off my personal experience. I have not gotten to the point with someone where they overdid it to an extent where they were in, they were suffering overtraining, which is very hard to do. You know, a lot of times people will say this phrase, oh, I was overtrained. I have been coaching for 10 years and I've never once 
you know, actually seen a client that was clinically overtrained. The ability to get overtrained, if you look into the literature, in strength training and resistance trained athlete, it is like getting, it's less likely than getting struck by lightning. To be honest with you, the interventions that they've utilized, which is one, you know, they've done every single day, daily max, uh, max, um, squat testing of 10 max, uh, squat tests or, uh, 10 sets of max squat repetitions. And they still have not been able to get people into a clinically overtrained state. When clinically, when you're clinically overtrained, it's a period in which you have not only regressed in terms of your performance, but you're unable to supercompensate and get back to there after a deload or after weeks and months of having pulled back on your training. The only person I have ever seen or known who has actually clinically overtrained is Dr. Scott Stevenson, who has been a mentor of mine. And he shared the experience. And I cannot even recount the training program that he utilized to get to that. It was an extremism that I, it would almost sound like I'm making things up and just, you know, I've been to dinner with him. I've been on many calls with him and I know the person that he is, how he pushes himself and the integrity that he has. So he would never, you know, extrapolate this or exaggerate what he went through. However, I have yet to deal with anyone that has really overdone it to an extent where I couldn't say, Hey, listen, you got to pull back a little bit. You know, you're, you know, in Jeremiah's case, for instance, you know, maybe you're doing a couple thousand extra steps. Now you're going to have to eat more and you're getting to the point in terms of your digestive capacity and your appetite where that's becoming your bottleneck, your limiting factor. However, because I've done so many podcasts and presentations and so much information and content on energy flux, I have been getting over the past six to six months to nine months, people have reached out to me that are literally saying, Hey, you know, I've listened to your stuff. I've been always uh, someone that has, I guess, been utilizing a high energy flux lifestyle. And these are individuals that are 30,000 steps, you know, per day, and they're doing things to an extreme. And then I'm, you know, I don't work with them personally, and I haven't taken these clients on. That's not really their interest. They're just asking me questions. And what I realized is it's more of an extreme mindset. And it's what we would consider kind of almost like a exercise addiction. And so it's the same people that are doing 40 and 50 sets per workout. They're working out multiple times per day. They're not deloading. You know, they're, um, they're very extreme. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. He's probably going to listen to this podcast. There's an individual that asks that reaches out constantly in my DMS and I'm not doing this to call him out, but it's such an extremism in which every time he contacts me where I, hopefully this information or maybe putting it in a verbal format really reaches out and really gets through to him. Because every time he reaches out to me, he's doing 25 to 30,000 steps. He's training two to three times per day. He's eating in a very compressed time window, but compressing like four or 5,000 calories. And he has to eat this much. And he recently reached out to me that he's been in a building phase for about four or five months and has only gained two pounds. And he said, do you think this is a good rate of gain? And really where his, his body weight is two pounds rate of gain is, you know, less than 1% over four or five months. So that's very, very, very small. And he's a very lean individual. So it's, it's almost like overdoing everything. And that's where we go with, we have to realize that some people have these compulsions towards overdoing everything. And I think often with coaching and especially with where I'm at in my own career, I'm coaching a lot of people from the intermediate to advanced stage. And oftentimes coaching, it isn't about pushing these individuals. It's more so knowing when to pull them back from being their own worst enemy, as well as knowing when to push them. So, you know, if I have to push them a little bit in a training cycle or really getting them to an edge of discomfort, you know, it's, it's within a period of time where it's beneficial for them to, to really challenge their body and create a, you know, uh, stimulus, which is going to help with progression and then knowing when to pull back and deload them and things like that. So like with all things within training, nutrition, 
supplementation, you know, any type of modality that we utilize or any type of tool that we integrate within our coaching or into our lifestyles, there is a good, there's a, it's all about dose. And, you know, they say the dose makes a poison. And it's the same type of, if we take this concept and we apply it to hormones, I think this is something that a lot of people will be able to um, relate to because often hormones are demonized or these different conditions are demonized. So we hear about, you know, insulin and, you know, a lot of people will demonize insulin as a fat storage hormone. Well, having over, you know, a, a very high secretion of insulin. So being in a state of hyperinsulinemia is one of the top linked, um, you know, uh, physiological conditions that is linked to pathological insulin resistance. So that's not good, but having very low insulin secretion, that could be uh, detrimental because now you don't have the anti-catabolic effects of insulin. You don't have the um, muscle protein degradation, um, you know, balancing out effects of insulin. Same thing with, with cortisol. You know, a lot of people want to demonize cortisol as a stress hormone. However, if we don't have a cortisol response, we're not able to get amped up to train because cortisol really, when we look at it from a training uh, perspective, cortisol is an initial response in conjunction with the catecholamines, especially adrenaline, which helps to us to liberate energy into the system and be able to fuel, you know, hard productive training sessions. So it's all about this Goldilocks zone. We want hormones and we want everything that we do within a Goldilocks zone where it's which within our tolerable dose, as well as it's conducive to our goals, our lifestyle, and our ability to adapt to that stimulus. So if you are someone that, you know, 15,000 steps works really well for you, you're recovered well, you're eating sufficient amount of calories. That's another thing. We have to look at the state of energy balance. So if someone's doing 30,000 steps, but they're in a massive energy deficit in conjunction with that, they're probably going to be in a state of red. So relative energy deficiency. However, then we look at like energy compensation studies. When we actually look at the literature on energy compensation, which is limited to say the least. However, when we actually look at it, initially Ponzer, you know, put out the energy compensation theory or the constrained energy model. And that was, if we really look at the subsect of individuals he was looking at, it was hunter-gatherer populations. This was the Hadza. They're in a state of relative relative energy deficiency at all times because they're in low energy availability because they don't have unlimited access to calories and plenty for resources. So if you actually look at some of the, the work by um, some researchers out of um, University of North Carolina, um, specifically Dr. Anthony Hackett, uh, who is actually, or Hackney rather, who has looked at this, he sees that a lot of these individuals, whether it be an endurance athletes or hunter-gatherers, they're in a state of relative energy deficiency. So they're you know, the male athlete version of the female athlete triad. And a lot of times what we're seeing is down regulations in testosterone production, lower thyroid production. They're suffering all these metabolic adaptations because they're in a state of low energy availability in conjunction with doing an immense amount of aerobic training or immense amount of activity. However, we look at the most recent data on energy compensation. We see in energy balance that there isn't this massive compensatory effect. So what I mean by that, the constrained energy model says it's not additive. So the cardio you do or the extra activity you you, you're not getting, say that you, you were able to accurately, which we know we can't, but if we were to accurately be able to estimate through an activity tracker, how many calories we burn, we're not going to be able to reap all those calories. So for, say for instance, you do 500 calories of cardio per day. We're not actually going to reap that, that amount. What we really see is about a 28% compensation. So you're really getting about 72% of that calorie burn when you're in a deficit. However, at energy balance and in a surplus, we're getting more of that. So you're getting less of this compens uh, compensatory effect. So it really matters on so many different aspects. So yes, as with anything, it can be overdone, but we really have to look at the state, the nutritional status of the individual. What else are they doing? What is their adaptive capability? So what is their backgrounds? I have, you know, I've worked with endurance athletes that they have very high meat levels, but it's a part of their sport. So, you know, it's really uh, contextual to say the least. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 
Because I do see people that like, you know, they hear more steps and I feel like they just kind of take that to the extreme and think that, you know, they just need to keep adding more and more. And it's just like, you know, at some point you have to, you have to, I guess you have to ask yourself too, if the, if the trade-off is worth it as well too, you know, the time spent doing it as well too, that's that you have to factor in. Now, like you said, some people just naturally are probably going to move more than others just based on their lifestyle and what they do. And so for them, it's like, like you said, it's just kind of part of their, their lifestyle. What I, I had somebody ask me this uh, a while back. Cause I've always kind of taught my clients, Hey, you know, needs important. We want to stay moving. And one client brought up a really good point. He goes, what about those like male, male men and male ladies that you see that are like, you know, you still see some of them, they're overweight and you know, what are they doing most of the time? They're, they're walking around, you know? So it's like, he was kind of asking, you know, what do you think happens there? Do you think that, do you think they just eat way more than they actually think? And they consume, you know, probably like highly processed food. So they just eat more calories than they think, or is there maybe some genetic thing going on there? What are you, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I really think, yeah, I really think it comes to back to their nutritional habits. And a lot of times if these people, they're not fitness minded individuals, remember a lot of times when you, I, and Jeremiah are looking at these topics and at these concepts, it's within this, uh, fitness minded, uh, you know, mindset or perspective. And so we have clients that are coming to us and with me, I'm trying to increase energy expenditure so someone can eat more because they're moving more. Or in, in other cases, I'm trying to get someone that is at a low state of metabolic health. And I'm trying to find low hanging fruit that we can integrate into their busy lifestyle, like post-meal walks or, you know, tying, you know, a, a habit of walking with another habit that they already have, like an existing habit of taking a, a walk after a meal or taking a walk after a lunch break or whatever it may be. And I'm really trying to leverage their ability to improve their metabolic health, increase their energy expenditure, get them into a state where they're feeling better and they're they're really reaping the rewards of these things. However, when we look at the average person, you know, if you actually look at the average data by the CDC on the average American, they're getting between three to four, 4,000 steps per day. So they're actually underdoing things. And then also, if we really look at like the habitual habits of like the American diet, it's pretty, you know, there's a reason why it's called the sad diet or the Western, you know, West, the standard Western diet, which is hyperplatable foods, high amounts of both refined sugars. So refined carbohydrates and refined fats. So a lot of times, a lot of people, they're, it's almost like they have, they lack calorie awareness. So I think a lot of times, a lot of people don't realize the actual nutritional habits they have, the amount of calories that they're taking in. And it's also because it's not a priority of theirs. And so with post office workers or mailmen or whatever it may be, it might be that just their baseline habitual intake is so high that they're not reaping the rewards. However, we do see from a metabolic health perspective that say people that already eat a lot of, of calories. So we look at like collegiate athletes. Uh, we look at sumo wrestlers. They're able to stay in very good metabolic health because of their high levels of energy flux. That doesn't mean they're lean individuals. They're still overweight. They still have you know, excess adiposity. But what we really see is a decrement to their health, their metabolic health and their incidences of insulin resistance and type two diabetes, when we eliminate that movement and they keep eating the same way. And I see that with so many former athletes. There's so many clients that I've had, which I've been able to help transform or, or get them in a much better state of both physical, you know, well-being as well as uh, metabolic health, because they have a background, they have great muscle memory. They have this foundation that they built 10, 20 years ago. However, they lost you know, sight of the habits in terms of their training, their movement, their activities, their sporting, but they kept up with those same eating habits. And so now what we have to do is improve upon the eating habits and reintegrate a lot of those physical activity habits. Well, I think it goes to show too, that like, even if you do move a ton, it's like, it's going to help you. But at, at the end of the day, it's like your overall energy balance is going to be the most important. And like exercise really does, you can, like you can burn a lot or, you know, you can, expend a lot of energy doing exercise, but there is kind of that limit. Right. And I you think can it, never, you're never going to out walk or out exercise yeah. a bad diet. 
Well, right. And I think that goes to show and, and I feel like probably the foods that if somebody doesn't really care about what they eat and they just kind of go off taste, I really think, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, a lot of the foods that are around that, you know, people do consume that are really tasty. It's almost like a cheat code to basically like just eat over consume. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what, what I feel like it is. So even if we look at the literature, when we do short stints of interventions, where we put these same people on two different, you know, crossover studies, we look at Kevin Hall's, um, very tightly controlled metabolic word study, looking at processed versus unprocessed foods in the processed food condition, they ate about 507 calories more per day each day consecutively. So over the course of two weeks, they gained 2.2 pounds. However, when they just switched them and they were able to eat to satiety, they had protein equated. Everything was equated from sodium to fiber, to carbohydrates, to palatability. So this is not something we would actually see in the real real world because in the real world, the highly processed foods are, are way more hyperplatable and they really stimulate that dopamine, you know, um, area of the hypothalamus and really drive us for overconsumption. However, even in the most controlled and tightly, you know, regulated of studies, we see that people are more likely to overconsume and gain weight, even in a short period of time to gain two pounds in two weeks. That's pretty drastic. However, when they just simply gave them the ability to eat ad libitum, meaning to satiety, to fullness on unprocessed whole foods, unrefined foods, they actually lost two pounds. So it shows the power of nutrition in terms of your habits, your food choices, the food selection. That's why I'm so big on, you know, making sure we hit our micronutrients. We get whole foods. It's a predominantly whole food, nutrient dense diet first and foremost, in conjunction with all these things, because I look at all these things from nutrition to training, to activity levels, to energy flux or whatever we want to be. I'm looking at this as a, a multifaceted approach to improving someone's body composition, health, and, you know, looking for better outcomes. And it's never just one thing. We can't just isolate. It can't just be exercise. It can't just be training in the gym. It just can't be nutrition because these are one-sided approaches to a multifactorial issue, which is obesity. Absolutely. Jeremiah, did you have anything you wanted to, to add to, to that? I think you guys summed that up pretty well. I, uh, tonight, Allie and I are going to, to Mexican. So I'm going to, I got to have some, some chips and salsa and man, it's, it's so freaking easy to just overconsume that. Like if, if you're not careful with it, but man, they're freaking good though. That I don't know those tortilla chips, but, uh, so yeah, Jeremiah, anything going on on your end, anything that you've had lately or anything like that? Man, we are what a couple months deep into building phase, chest and bicep specialization. As Brandon said, I have been having some trouble getting my food down. Well, I mean, I've been I've been hitting my food. I feel like I've almost needed to be in my check-ins. Like, dude, I promise you, I'm actually eating all the food. Oh no, but I believe it. You just way has been upregulated your food. Like, you're eating a ton right now. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm surprised at how sticky actually my weight has been. I know I said this in my last check-in, but like I've just been stuck at like 193 to 195 pretty consistently. I know I said this in my last check-in. I think again, a big part of it is just not being nearly as flexible in like prior building phases. I've definitely worked in like more meals out um, and just like ordering and more and things of that nature. Again, we're like we're adjusting the plan to make things a little bit more palatable still. Um, but yeah, that's kind of been the struggle as of late, which has been fun. Um, I almost think that at least for me personally, I think that eating a lot of food is so much harder than dieting. Like dieting's nice. It's like, you just go eat small meals. It's, it doesn't really interrupt the flow of your day nearly as much. Whereas, um, definitely in a building phase, I think that's more of a challenge for me, but yeah, working through that, um, feeling pretty good as far as my progression so far, I'm excited to dig a little bit deeper into this muscle cycle and again like see what our progress is like um 
with last mesocycle being like the first mesocycle for a lot of the movements that we introduced, I'm really excited to actually like see what progress we can squeeze out here. But I mean, feeling good. I feel like I've definitely seen a big improvement in like my connection to my chest, my biceps, definitely getting better pumps in those areas as well. So um, on that end, happy with how things are going. Uh, similarly, I feel like I'm in a place right now and I know Brandon, we talked about this, but physique is still a priority, but it's also not the top priority. Whereas the business and growing our companies very much um our first priority so we're in the process of adding a fifth coach right now we have one in the internship process who i'm very impressed with so i'm interested to see how that goes always always a scary thing but a fun thing at the same time so yeah um been growing quickly and that's kind of where i'm at cool man that's awesome yeah so add, add another coach I, like you said i'm sure that's it's always cool to be able to grow like that, but at the same time, it's, you know, I'm sure there's a lot that goes into it and ramping up the coach to be able to take, you know, client load. And I, and I, I know that now, obviously this is going to be your fifth one, but it's like, you know, I'm sure there's probably some things that you're just like, you want it done your way. And, you know, you probably have to let go of that a little bit. And I'm sure that's part of being a leader and everything like that. Yeah, man, it's a, it's a challenge. That's a scary thing. I think as much as anything, it's at least for me, I put a lot of pressure on it because it's, uh, to an extent, it sometimes feels like it's like, or when you're bringing someone on, it's almost like this is another person I have to make sure I can provide for. And can I, like, am I up for that? Right. Um, like, can I make sure their roster stays full? Can I train them to the extent that they meet like the expectations that I have and they can like give, like, this is our company name and they can live up to that, which I mean, all the coaches on our team are incredible. I'm so fucking proud of all of them. Like I couldn't be like, I truly couldn't be more proud of each of them. I think we have an incredible team and like, it was so scary for me when I started, especially, but like starting with Andrea, like she's exceeded my expectations every single day since she started and all of them have done so, but it, it's definitely a scary step. And again, like each time I feel like at the start, just like the pressure of like, fuck, can we like, can I really make this work? You know, like, can I really provide, can I train them well enough that they give our clients like the level of service I think everyone deserves? which I know, I know I will. It's still just like, a, it's still a scary thing. So yeah, but I'm, I'm at the same time, I'm very excited for it. I'm excited for our team to keep growing. And again, like, especially with like who we have in the works as of now, um, I think it's going to be an incredible fit. So yeah. It's awesome. Do you, now that you're, you know, going to be, you know, you've been doing this for a while now in terms of having other coaches, do you like coaching like for that and like less clients or what, what have you found to be there? <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily, it's a little bit different than I expected. I mean, I feel like now, as opposed to like having a roster of like 50 clients, I have like, <laughs> I, it's just like, now I have like a hundred some clients, you know what I mean? So it's very much like still we're as a team, we're very collaborative. So we're constantly going back and forth. I, I don't know if I actually feel like that. That that's that's definitely a massive exaggeration, but very much like it's still like if I'm not coaching my clients, then we're working through as a team. Okay, what's going on with this client? Hey, what could we do to better set up their training program here? Or like, okay, let's troubleshoot this stall. Or like, what's going on within this person's blood work? Like, no matter what, I feel like I'm, it doesn't feel different. I do coach less people now than I did like two years ago. I still have a decent amount of people on my roster, and I still want to like maintain that touch, but it doesn't feel different because I still feel like I'm always coaching rather. It's like just, a, I would say like 50% of my time now is working through like, Hey, what do you have going on with your client? Let's figure this out. Or like hopping on calls with everyone. 
So it's still, it, it really doesn't feel much different. It's more so just like communicating with the coach and still like checking in with everybody's clients as well to make sure everybody's good, um, see how they're feeling and things like that. But yeah, it honestly doesn't feel that much different as of now. I haven't like, nor do I know if I want to be in a place where it's just like, it just runs by itself without me. Like I had, there was like, oh, there was a couple weeks right before Natalie started and shit just like got crazy. In, in the best way, but there was a couple of weeks where it was like, I felt like I had my clients that I had on my roster were just had been around for a very long time. They're all very low maintenance, you know, like, like you, Jeff, you're a great example of that, right? Like our check-ins, you've been with me for like two and a half years. So you really like, it was more or less just the accountability. Like you're good. I had, my roster was mostly just clients like that. And I've taken a lot of, on a lot of new clients since then, but, and it was like, we're kind of in a lull. So it was like, I felt like you didn't have much to do. And that was just the worst. Like, <laughs> I think that was like the most depressing two weeks that I've had in a very long time. So I don't know if I ever want it to be something that just like runs on itself. And I don't, I mean, I'm sure my role will continue to evolve, but yeah, I still very much feel involved with the coaching and that's how I want it to be. Yeah. I always find too, that like with you know, some of those clients that are a little bit more low maintenance, you're kind of like, man, give, give me a little bit more info here. Cause I want to, cause it's like, you know, being online, like you want to kind of, it just helps that you, you feel like you're more a part of it when there's a little bit more that you have to do. So I'm assuming that's kind of what you, what you meant by that. Like, you just want to make sure you're, you know, in tune with like what's going on with the clients and, and things like that. So that way you kind of, you know, cause I always find that for me, that helps me really help out the client a little bit more and I'm a little bit more in tune with, with everything that's going on. So yeah, to an extent, I mean, like I have a good buddy who owns a similar business and like for him, he works like he says he works a couple hours a day. Um, and just like the rest of it's just like connecting with people and like going to coffee shops and stuff like that. And he's like, dude, you gotta like change your schedule. Um, like to me, that sounds like the worst thing ever. Like if you could like ask me what my perfect week is, it would be like, man, I look back Monday through Friday. I'm feel worn out Friday night because I know I did at least like a good, like 10 hours of work every day. And then like, I can enjoy my weekend and like, but I feel like, I don't know. I just don't really want that at, at least at the moment. So I, I, I totally know what you mean there. It's like, we think that we want to have like all this free time in the world, but then when you do get it, you're like, oh, man, I should, I gotta be doing something else, you know, to find, to find out that time. And I feel like that's always I don't know. That, I, I can feel you there though. I always feel like that's been a, been a struggle of mine too. So very much, man. It just brings me back to just appreciating the process. And actually every time I like have those moments, it's like, all right, I did the thing, be it like the financial goal, the client goal, we add another coach and their roster's full. And like, you put so much on them. It's like, and then like, once I get to that point, I'll just like relax and chill and like, things will be stress-free. Free. And then it's like, and you're stressing about not having want. stress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's no. not even actually what you enjoy. It's it's the growth and the process. I know that's like kind of cliche, but every time it just brings me back to that, like that's the part of it that we actually love. Hell yeah. No, dude, I can completely relate to you because as you know, we just checked in. I got back from uh Punta Cana, which was honestly my first vacation that I've taken. Like the first non-business, every single trip, if you guys look at, it's been the PC. Like I went to the PC for my birthday or it's been a presentation or it's been an expo or it's been a seminar. The last 10 years, I have not taken a personal trip for myself except for this past week. And it was something I shared this with Jeremiah during this week's check-in. As much as I appreciated, Boone Cana was beautiful. It was an amazing, immersive, you know, I got the, you know, top of the, top of the line type of experience. And it was 
immensely beautiful, relaxing. I got more sleep than I have in, in months. I got more relaxation, re, you know, recovery than I have since college, since like college vacations back in the day. However, about four days in, I told, I, I shared this with you, Jeremiah, I just needed to get back to work. And it wasn't just like me being a workaholic. It's that there's so many people, you know, I work and you guys do the same. You work with a lot of, you know, type A, busy you know, um, very productive individuals, but a lot of them aren't doing something they truly love. And in what I'm very fortunate is, and here's the thing, I can really look at this in a very objective manner because I've had a full-time corporate career, which was very lucrative. However, I also did coaching and I left a very lucrative career to go all in on this. And it's because this is my passion. And I'll tell you guys, I feel like I interact and I'm sure you guys have friends, have clients that they, you know, they look forward every single week to the weekend because they want to be done with work. They want to relax. They want to kick back. They want that reprieve. And here's the thing, Jeremiah can attest to this. I take emails and check in seven days a week. I work seven days a week, year on or week in, week out, month on, month out, year on, year out. And this past week, I, I left it up to my clients. I said, listen, I'm here if you need me, but if you want to take the week off, by all means. And so I had some clients that checked in, some didn't. Jeremiah kicked back. He didn't, he didn't hit me with a check-in, although I was looking forward to it. But here's the thing. I got through a few days where I didn't have check-ins and I just wanted to get back to it because I have a life that I don't need or I even want a vacation from. I truly love what I do. And it's funny because over the last couple of months, and I can't really expand on this too much, but I was offered um, to be the head educator for a, a fairly big coaching company. And that would have been a full-time role. And it was like a corporate position. And, and there was a lot of incentives and a lot of um, great amenities that went through with that. And there was a lot of pride in being offered that position. However, I, I didn't ultimately take it because it would be taking me out of my role as a coach. And as much as I love educating people, you know, you guys always know, I love coming on here and, you know, trying to bridge the gap between research and information. I do, you know, a private mentorship and all these type of things. And I love doing presentations and I actually have a few in the works as we're speaking. However, to get out of this coaching role where I'm in the trenches with people, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to give that up because that's what I truly love. And I've had opportunities to do other careers. I've had opportunities just recently even to leave and, and be within the same industry, but to to just coach other coaches essentially. And I still love working with people one-on-one -on -one. and because I feel fulfilled on a daily basis, interacting with clients, getting into the trenches with them, you know, helping them navigate their obstacles and their issues. And I really live for that. And another thing that I really realized that I'm very appreciative, not just the clients I work with, because I have a lot of, you know, great clients who I have immensely great relationships with, but I also, I'm at the point in my career where I got a lot of complex cases. And a lot of times coaches, I'll interact because I mentor other coaches. I interact with a ton of other high level coaches. A lot of times they're like, dude, you know, this client is a pain in the ass, you know what I mean? Or it's really hard, you know, it's a difficult, but here's the thing. I live for those challenges because these are the clients that I learn the most from. So it's not only them learning from me, but there are times that someone has such a uh, deep whether it's a psychological or a physiological issue that I'm trying to work with, or I haven't experienced in the past that I'm going through loads of blood work. I'm running different tests on them. I'm really trying and I'm pushing my limits mentally and my capabilities as a coach. And I'm growing in the process as are they. And those are the things that keep me on my toes and keep me evolving as a coach. And it's something that as stressful as it could be in that moment, I feel super fulfilled when I get a positive you know, check-in or response from that client, knowing that I move the needle in their life. And although it's just with one person, it's really impacted them on a grand scheme or a grand scale. So these, this is something like Jeremiah, every time that we talk about business and you share these things with me, like within our check-ins or our own conversations that we have, I can completely relate to that. And that's, I'm almost so cautious to bring someone else on my team because I love like doing it all. 
you know, and that's not yeah. the greatest approach. However, I just love the art of coaching. I love the, what I'm able to do within my career. And so I don't, you know, I might be an old man still doing this thing. And it's funny because I had dinner, you know, a couple of months, you know, last month with Alan Aragon and Scott who have stopped coaching at this point. And I kind of shared with them, uh, you know, I love academia. I love research. I love information. I love teaching others and doing these types of things. But I think I'm always going to want a, a, a like a roster of clients so that I can actually do these things in the real world with them. And instead of just reading about it and then just like, you know, extrapolating it out and, and speaking about it to others. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, man. Yeah, that's, and you, you talk about Punta Cana. I went there about a year ago and it's freaking awesome, man. That's a really Beautiful. cool place. Yeah, really, really cool place. And like you said, it was the same situation. It was in January. So it was like warm and then got back and it was freaking cold. And it was, a, it was a nice breakup from the, from the cold though. In the winter. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I agree, though. I think it's always good to, like, get away from time to time. But then you always kind of get that itch to to come back. Because I think it's good to just kind of take a step back a little bit. And I feel like when you get to leave and you're not in your normal routine, it's always nice to just do that for a couple of days at least and kind of refresh in a way. I always find that after I go on a trip, I'm just like, you know, I, I feel like it's a good – it's kind of like using, like, a diet break or deload. It's like you're always excited to get back to what you were doing. And I think that's a that's a good thing to to have. So Great analogy. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Brandon, in terms of your training, anything going on there with anything right now or. Yeah. So I'm uh, currently in a building phase. I'm uh, running, you know, I, I really enjoy, and I really find benefit from a, a higher frequency uh, training modality or training routine. Um, so right now I'm just really trying to get to a lot of, um, back to a lot of my off season best in terms of training performance, because I'm back in a gym structure in which I've trained in, in previous years. Um, because for a long time, I was in different locations in this past year, this past summer, I relocated to a place that I, I trained, I spent a long period of time training at. So it's a gym I'm familiar with. Um, it was actually the gym in which I probably built my best physique to date in terms of when I was actually competing. I had a lot, you know, a lot more muscle mass. So there's a lot of machines, a lot of modalities, a hack squat that I really have like these PBs. I mean, I have journals upon journals with, with training logs and things of that sort. So I'm kind of just chasing those things, experimenting with a few different, uh, different training modalities, which, um, I'm kind of looking at both in terms of the literature, as well as, you know, trying to flush it out almost like, you know, a great, someone I'm going to be jumping on a podcast soon with is, is one of our friends, Brian scene. And he's always looking at experimenting with different things. And I'm doing similar things, but in a, in a different facet. But um, besides that, man, just continuing to eat the food, um, you know, it's, as unfortunate as it is, or as funny as it is, I'm probably one of the only people that goes to an all-inclusive, you know, resort and I lose weight because, you know, I'm very active and I was walking everywhere. Uh, and it wasn't that I was restricting my intake. It's just that at this point, it's kind of like if I sent Jeremiah, if Jeremiah decided to go on a vacation, I'd have to have him with a feeding tube to get in his calories because he'd be moving a lot. Or, you know, if he didn't have access to like at, in the resort we were in, there wasn't Ubers and stuff. Like I was walking everywhere and I was eating out at restaurants four times per day, but I have such good nutritional habits. I'm always going to anchor all my meals with a large bolus of lean protein. I'm going to have my veggies first. And then if I indulge in something, it's after all that. So I've already hit my micronutrient intake. I've had nutrient dense whole foods that are are highly satiating. So I'm really not one to really veer off track. So I actually came back and I jumped on the scale and I was a couple pounds lighter and I'm like, oh, now I got to eat even more. So just eating the food, you know, progressing with my training, really pushing things. I'm really having to get back to a, a training style and a training modality in terms of pushing my volume. I'm someone that it's not that I need excessive amounts of volume, but I do need uh, quite a large stimulus to grow again. And I, I know where I've been and I know where I have to take my body and my mind again to get back to where I've been. Do you, so for both of you guys, because uh, Brandon, I know you're coaching Jeremiah and Jeremiah, you're kind of mentioning that like, you're talking about food and, uh, you know, increasing the, uh, the tastiness of it essentially is uh, what you said. Do you, what were your kind of thoughts on that? Do you try to be a little flexible 
a little bit more flexible uh, when you're in a surplus or you still try to really stick to, you know, the, you know, nutrient dense foods most of the time or. Yeah. So, so I look at nutrition from a fundamental, uh, you know, kind of out, you know, perspective. So I have my fundamentals. It's always going to be nutrient dense foods, 80 to 90% of the time. I am someone from a digestive perspective. I really just don't feel well, both in terms of my digestive capacity, um, as well as my energy levels from really hyper palatable food. So what I end up doing is I, I leverage in an opposite fashion, sensory specific satiety. So often when we have, you know, you guys have both been on podcasts with me, I've discussed sensory specific satiety, kind of using a low variety of foods towards the latter end of a diet. So, you know, I've spoken about, you know, kind of like the hedonistic staircase. And so you go from more hyper palatable foods towards, you know, less hyper palatable and more, uh, you know, um, more. I guess, less tasty or plainer foods towards the end of a diet, I kind of ramp up in the opposite fashion. But how I do it is I try to vary the taste. So I'm using nutrient-dense foods, but I use a lot of different spices, a lot of different condiments. Every single meal, I'll use a different condiment to be able to drive up my intake. If I know that I have to get down 150 grams of carbs within you know, a certain meal, you know, say my post-workout meal right now is 175 grams of carbohydrates, I'm utilizing multiple transportable carbs. So I'm utilizing you know, sources of glucose as well as sources of fructose to upgrade regulate my ability to actually absorb these nutrients and not get GI distress because we know from actual research that our body's ability to assimilate carbohydrates in the form of glucose can only be up to one gram of glucose per minute. So really it's 60 grams per hour. But when you add in fructose to to that because they utilize different, you know, carbohydrate transporters, we utilize sodium glucose dependent transporter one SGLT1 in terms of glucose absorption, as well as GLUT4. And then we utilize GLUT5 in terms of fructose absorption. So I utilize different types of fruits. I'm utilizing maybe rice, cream of rice, and then I'll have rice cakes, you know? And so I'm using multiple food sources to be able to increase the variety and also be able to drive my appetite. Whereas if I'm in a dieting phase, I'll utilize one type of carb source because it's going to allow me to become more satiated because basically we have something essentially palate fatigue. So when you eat the same food, you eat a large amount of it, you're not going to continue eating more and more and more. But when you switch up the taste, whether it be through a condiment or through a different, you know, food source in of itself, we're able to eat more, which is kind of like the buffet effect. Or even if we look at like when we we sit down for a meal, you have say a steak and potato meal, and you're completely full with savory, you know, salty foods, but we always have room for dessert. So it's kind of like that phenomenon. So that's something that I utilize within my gaining phases or my building phases. I'm utilizing many different condiments, different sauces, really trying to, you know, increase the variety in terms of that. But really the fundamental basis of my diet is still going to be nutrient dense whole foods. Luckily, you know, I'm still someone that's able to get in a, a multitude. I, I utilize a lot of fruit within a lot of my meals so that I have a large amount of micronutrients still hitting fiber. But I, what I will do is during a dieting phase, I'm making sure that for every thousand calories that I take in, I'm hitting at least a minimum of 15 grams of fiber you know, which is what's recommended. Usually it's, it's 14 to 15 grams per thousand calories. However, once I get into a building phase and I'm at four, 4,500 calories, I might drop that down to 10 to 15. So I have more of a, um, you know, a, a range within fiber. I'm lowering fiber just based off of my digestion, how full I feel I'm utilizing less voluminous foods. So instead of my, say my vegetables being cucumbers or something that's high volume, high water, uh, low energy density, I'll utilize something like a squash. 
in replacement for it or more root tubers, which are going to have less of a, a, a stomach expanding effect and leave me less satiated. But I have so much more food, so many more calories to play with that I'm still satiated after every meal. So it's kind of just taking a lot of the same fundamental principles and almost doing it in reverse that I would in a diet and leveraging the concepts that I know about nutrition, about satiety, and about appetite regulation in a manner that is best suited for the goal that I have at hand. So this is a question that came up while you were saying that the, the, you call it, you know, the buffet effect. Is that something that is just in a meal, like a meal, like it within one meal, or is it like, can you zoom, zoom out? And is, is it like meal to meal? You can, you can do that from day to day, or is it just within like, like a short time frame? So the buffet effect. So these are, you're looking at multifactorial components of appetite regulation. So within a meal itself, the buffet effect would uh, really refer to sensory specific satiety, meaning that we get filled by not only the, you know, we don't get filled by calories, we get filled by food volume first and foremost, but also from a, a, a sensory, you know, specific. So a, a taste within a meal. So say that you had an unlimited serving of chicken and potatoes, you're eventually going to get your full on those where you're really going to be less likely to overconsume as compared to hyperplatable food that has this mix. So it has sweet and sour, you know, it has salt and vinegar, whatever it may be these these combinations of multiple flavors that are driving your appetite. However, so the buffet effect refers to the fact that when we go to a buffet, there are so many different sensory um, you know, stimuli. You know, we have, you know, salty, sweet. We're going back and forth between different food sources. You never get your fill on one. You constantly keep going to others. So you're more likely to overconsume calories. And in a lot of studies, they show people eating 40 to 50% more due to that um, over, you know, that immense amount of variety. And we see that variety even within a meal, as well as meals to meals will drive ad libitum food intake. So that does have an effect on subsequent meals. So it's not only within that meal itself, but also within subsequent meals, but how I leverage it in a building phase is, you know, eventually you're going to get your fill, whether, you know, you get sick of Frank's red hot or whatever it may be. So I like utilizing different flavors within each meal. And sometimes what I'll actually do is I'll utilize say like more of a sweet meal pre-workout. I'll make a cream of rice with say protein powder, some, you know, you know, maybe some almond butter. So it's something like chocolate, you know, uh, a chocolate peanut butter mix essentially. So that is more of my sweet and savory. And then my next meal, say my post-workout meal will be something with hot sauce or something with teriyaki. So it's more savory. And so I'm switching between these different stimuli. So I never really get sick of it. And that's what I find with a lot of individuals is it's not only that they're full, but they're just sick of the food that they're eating. And that's why they kind of do have to, or they think that they have to go to these really hyper palatable foods. But often what I find with that is Remember, we're looking to induce a surplus, but it's a slight surplus. So it's not that we want to, you know, have a runaway train in terms of our intake. And what I find with a lot of people is that even in a surplus, they find it very hard to moderate those hyperplatable foods. So if they're eating a lot of processed foods, not only is it is it harder for them to digest, it's harder for them to get, you know, um, I guess consistencies in performance because they're switching their food so much. So a lot of times, you know, if someone's utilizing more of an if it fits your macros plan for an off-season, you know, um, approach, you know, they're utilizing such a high amount of food swapping and utilizing so many different food sources. They don't have any consistency within the routine where they know what meals suit them best. So I know exactly what meals I do best with from a digestive perspective. They're whole food, nutrient dense, but they have a sufficient calorie load and a sufficient energy for my goals currently. But I know what I'm getting myself into. So I know my pre-workout meal is going to sit well with me. I'm going to be ready to train within 60 minutes of having, you know, consume that. I'm going to have good digestive capacity. I'm going to have good performance, good fuel, uh, good energy, very consistent blood uh, sugar regulation, things of that sort. But then I also leverage uh, within that. Another thing that I really like to utilize is liquid nutrition. 
nutrition. So I will utilize, you know, intra-workout carbohydrates. I will sometimes add in some liquid sources of nutrition to my meal. So for instance, if I'm having a chicken and rice meal and I want a fructose source, so I want to, you know, utilize and leverage another multiple transportable carb, but I'm full. So I don't have an ability to fit in a whole, uh, you know, bowl of berries. I'll utilize a fruit juice, like a natural fruit juice, or I'll utilize some source. I'll even utilize like a highly brand cyclic dextrin alongside it, which is, you know, um, a high molecular weight, low osmolarity carbohydrate. So really what that means is it gets absorbed right into the bloodstream very readily. It has very quick digestive capacity. It tastes great because it's flavored. So it's almost like having like fruit punch. And so these are different things that we can leverage and still maintain good digestive function, energy levels. And also another thing that I never want to do is eat so much in a meal, whether it be from a total volume perspective, as well as from like a a highly processed food perspective where I feel inflamed and I don't digest things well, that it impacts subsequent meals because there's this compounding effect. It's not just what you eat in that meal, but it's how it affects you over those next few hours. So a lot of times, sometimes I'll have people where they don't time their meals properly. So then they combine meals and they're having these enormous meals and they don't realize the implications that that has in later meals, or they try all these different food sources, these processed foods, and they try to slam them down and they overconsume them. And then they're not feeling great throughout the, co- the rest of the course of their day. So either it causes them to underconsume at later meals or to be unable to digest those foods properly. So there's so many things, so many variables we have to take in consideration. And so just like we're very, I'm very meticulous when it comes to food selection, uh, food quality, the food sources that I utilize within a, a uh, deficit where we're at a lack of calories and we really need to make you know every calorie count. I do the same thing in terms of my building phases. I just have a little bit more liquid nutrition, maybe more supplemental calories. Even sometimes I'll utilize something like a protein bar on top of the meal if I really need to get calories, but with a very small amount of food volume. Yeah. Well, kind of like Jeremiah said, it's like in the, in a building phase, like eventually it's almost tougher to just eat that food all the time. Cause like you said, you, you need to kind of find that like perfect setup almost in a way where it's like you eat enough food at each meal, but then it's like, it doesn't affect, you know, your meals later. And then you got to make sure that you can still, it's easy. You know, you're not eating such highly processed foods that then it's like, now it's not sitting good with your stomach. Cause I've been there before too, where like, I've been trying to eat so much food at one point where it was like, you know, my digestion uh, digestion was off. Like, you know, I wasn't, that wasn't good. And that's obviously not going to help you want to eat more. And and plus, you know, potentially even like you're probably going to the bathroom a little bit more. That's not going to be great for, for a surplus. So it's definitely a challenge. Um, I definitely think building is way more of a challenge than, than fat loss, but again, it's all, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the, the person, the individual there. So real quick, before we dive into the questions, I just wanted to kind of get your guys' thoughts on, uh, you know, kind of what I've been doing. So like, uh, I do my own nutrition. And so I've been in a surplus since, you know, Jeremiah, we started that surplus probably almost, I think my photo shoot was like end of April uh, of 2022. And then from there, it's like, we had like, yeah, uh, we had like a health phase for like a month and then we just went into a surplus. Right. And so I just went into a mini cut for um, right at the end here. It's going to be, end up being about three weeks. And that's kind of what I wanted. I wanted to get to around, once I got around 170, I was like, okay, I'm going to dial back to 163. And like, I wasn't trying to do it obviously to like get shredded or anything, right? Like my main goal with it was I was like in a surplus for so long. And just like you said, you know, it's like you get to that point to where eventually it's just like, man, I just don't want to keep eating all the time. It's like nine, you know, I'm pushing my meals back to like nine o'clock some nights, not not interrupting your sleep. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, man, I just needed a break, you know, and I just felt like too, again, my surplus wasn't large, right? Like I think we ended my, uh, the photo shoot at like 155, 157 ish. And I got up to mm-hmm. 170 and you know, that time frame. So it wasn't like I was in a large surplus or anything like that, but do you guys 
think that it's probably a good idea to just get out of a surplus for just a little bit of time, even if it's not like, again, I'm not gaining weight too quickly, but I just feel like it would be a good idea to get out of that for at least just a little bit of time, uh, just to send a different signal to your body. From like a hunger perspective or from like both, a health perspective? Both. I think health and hunger. Like hunger, yes, because I, I that was part of the issues. Like I did want to get, you know, to the point to where I ramped up my hunger a little bit, which I'm there. Like, it's so funny, man, how you're in a building phase and it's like, I don't really want to eat much more. And then all of a sudden you get in a deficit for a couple of weeks and it's like, that sounds good. That sounds good. Um, It's just oh, yeah. such a different feeling. But but yeah. I, I mean, I think from both. Sorry, go ahead. Go, dear man. You go. I think from both perspectives, it's helpful. I mean, in like a building phase, I, I, with quite a few, especially when you're at like, Hey, it's been six plus months. I would really like before six months, especially that like enter something like a mini cut. I think for most everyone, that's just way too soon. Of course there's context there, but like when you're like at like nine plus months and it's just like, man, there's just no appetite. I think even from resensitizing your appetite a bit, that's very helpful. But I mean, similarly from like an optimizing nutrient partitioning and things, I mean, and I know you at 170 still isn't like that. I mean, take your shirt off, dude, and let's see what you're working with right now. <laughs> but like, you know, you at 170 is still pretty lean, right? Uh, fairly lean, right? Like my abs are definitely starting to get a little blurry. Like me and you got up to, to 180 the, the time before. Mm -hmm. And I was definitely like, you could tell in my face, like I was like, you pushed it pretty far there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I think from a health perspective as well, right? Like depending on how high we're pushing it, metabolic health will be better. Nutrient partitioning will probably be better. You'll probably get better pumps and just as a whole feel better, which I think Brandon can speak to this a lot better. I feel like when I say that, I'm like thinking of the bullet points from our podcast we did on this. So I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, I think, you know, it's so funny because I can refer back to so many podcasts that I've done with both of you guys on these topics. So, you know, maybe I'll, I'll think of some of them that I've done. We've done, Jeff, you and I have done a full like deep dive into mini cuts. So if you guys want to hear about any of the benefits, I'll touch on some of them here. However, there is a full like hour and a half podcast that I dove into every single benefit and application of mini cuts. Jeremiah, we've done a two-part series on lean building phases. Um, we did a P ratio, both of us, uh, all three of us honestly mm -hmm. did a P ratio where I spoke about how to optimize nutrient partitioning and some of the drawbacks of excessive periods of being in a surplus in terms of uh, accumulating excess adipose tissue, uh, increasing insulin resistance within that process. However, when we really think about it from a fundamental perspective, like we're all proponents of nutritional periodization. And what is that? That is planning, you know, periodic phases of pushing and, and aligning different variables to, uh, essentially uh, get better outcomes long-term. So within that, you know, if we look at really the trajectory of your building phase previously, you got to have a deficit in April. Um, you were at, you know, um, my birthday in May, I know you were already eating up at that point. So let's say 10 to 11 months of being in a surplus by that point. Yes, absolutely. So everything has to be basic. I'm a big fan of not setting these D distinct. And I've spoken with Jeremiah about this so many times that often within coaching, we want to like, even within ourselves, we want to have like this yearly plan, but that's generally not how it works because coaching is not a predictive process. It's a reactive process, even when you're doing it for yourself. So we really have to take so many things into consideration. However, if we just look at it at a large time scale, what I really like to do is, is like a four to one ratio of building in terms of being in a surplus towards, you know, cutting or being in a deficit, or even I actually have multiple uh, modalities that I go with on this. So I'm going to speak on mini cuts, but also I'm going to give you guys some food for thought in other terms of what I've done to reset athletes appetite, because I honestly shared this with Jeremiah earlier this week, but I have a lot of tips and tricks for people with appetite um, that I won't share on this podcast. However, um, there have been times that I've had to push guys, you know, high level athletes. So 800 to a thousand grams of carbohydrates a day, 
to get to where they needed to be from a, a tissue building perspective. And that was them in a slight surplus. They just had such high energy expenditure from carrying around. You know, I've worked with guys that are 225 pounds on stage, meaning that their off-season weight is 250, 260, very muscular and lean still. And so we need to toggle back and forth and titrate our approach to things in terms of both our approach to calories, our approach to training. So just like we would take a deload and back off or an active recovery phase, and we would pull back to launch forward to potentiate our progress going forward, the same thing needs to be done with nutrition. So whenever our body is given the same stimuli, whether it's from a, a calorie perspective, it's a nutrient perspective, a food perspective, uh, a training perspective, there's going to be some adaptive resistance that is accumulated throughout that process. So within the context of a caloric service, plus over time, we see some decrements to being in a surplus long-term. We see, you know, attenuations in our insulin sensitivity. So we start seeing that our blood glucose is going up both in terms of our fasted blood glucose, our postprandial blood glucose. I see this often on, on lab work. I'll start seeing fasting insulin go up. So there's some indices of increasing amounts of insulin resistance. And now this doesn't mean pathological, meaning it doesn't mean you're, you're pre-diabetic, but it, it's getting unfavorable. It's showing that you're having a down regulation in your nutrient partitioning abilities, and you may be more skewed towards, uh, you know, with insulin resistance comes one of the key indicators. So insulin resistance, really, when we go into the pathophysiology of insulin resistance, it comes from three things, a chronic, you know, what they call energy toxicity. So that's a chronic surplus. It comes from uh, oxidative stress and then also inflammation. So they're all tied to each other. We can't, you know, kind of extrapolate or, or take one out and just put it in isolation. So when you start becoming more insulin resistant, you become more inflamed. So now you're having more inflammatory response to foods. You're having less digestive health or digestive capacity. Now you're seeing attenuations in your appetite or your hunger. And so not only are there physiological implications, but also psychological implications, because we've all been in this phase, like Jeremiah just hit on earlier, where, you know, sometimes building for some of us, where we really have to push our body. Now, this might not be applicable to like your lifestyle client, that their biggest struggle or their biggest goal is fat loss and dieting is their biggest hurdle because they never go into these extended building phases. But for many of us, I'll tell you, I've had to, you know, bulk, you know, back in the day on 5,200 calories where I dreaded food, honestly. And I felt like I was constantly eating. And so that is a struggle in and of itself. And with that comes down regulations. Think about it. You're putting more energy into the system. That's more energy. Your body has to process first and foremost. So it's, it's more, um, carbohydrates that your body has to shuttle and, and get into cells. It's more of a chance for having a hyperinsulinemic state where insulin's elevated to be able to facilitate that glucose transport and absorption. Then also you're more in an inflamed state because you're in a hyperinsulinemic state. So inflammation's higher. Your appetite's down regulated because now your leptin levels are higher because your body fat's higher. So now we have more of an impetus to secrete leptin. So now we're having down regulations or offsetting in our appetite hormones. And so often what I find mini cutting being really beneficial when it's been a long extended phase is to go into a four to eight week mini cut where we really look to pull things back and just go into uh, really my philosophy of mini cuts is get in, get the fat off, get your appetite back and get out. And so we see that there are so many benefits from an insulin sensitivity perspective, from a appetite perspective, um, you know, even just from a motivational perspective, because often I'll pull, you know, clients training back. We've been really pushing hard, both in terms of training and food throughout the course of that building phase where they're kind of burnt out on both of these stimuli. So we pull back to maybe minimum effective volume. We lower the calorie amount and we really allow the body to get more rest, relaxation, and then also to improve itself from a metabolic health perspective. Perspective. So we're seeing better, you know, increases in insulin sensitivity. We're seeing your blood glucose come down. We're able to focus more of the energy and, you know, attention that we were spending on all this time eating and training on stress mitigation, better sleep quality, because even 
in terms of a long building phase, when you're eating all that food and you're starting to extend your eating window towards night, we see that that has decrements on sleep quality, which is going to have downstream effects on cortisol secretion, on stress regulation, things like that. So I really like that. But also there are certain individuals that I found that they do better with a shorter building phase. And these are usually hypermuscular individuals. So these are more of my advanced clients that they've been through many, many building phases in the in in the past. So they have a very good foundation, but I see that both from a physiological and a psychological perspective, they really can't push it for a long time. So I actually utilize the concept of diet breaks with them during the course of their building phase. So like I said, there's two different modalities that I'll utilize. I'll use a mini cut or I'll utilize what I call a holding phase where I'll bring their down their calories to maintenance. It's almost like a diet break. What we would utilize within the course of a deficit where we would bring them back up to maintenance and give them an extended period of time, one to two weeks where we're easing off, we're dissipating fatigue, both from a dietary perspective, and we're really letting them get revitalized and reset. I do that actually in the course of a building phase. And sometimes it's within the four to six month point. I know that this person has more in the tank. However, they're just they just need a little bit of, you know, uh, a resetting. So maybe two weeks or even four weeks spent in this holding phase where we're just trying to get back to maintenance calories, give their digestive system a little bit of a break, get them, you know, re-motivated as well as their appetite, give them a little bit more of a uh, active recovery phase. And then we go right back into the surplus. Yeah, no, that's right. You don't necessarily always have to go into that deficit. You can just do more like a holding phase. Like you said, one thing, two, two more things I just want to bring up real quick about uh, this is for one, I freaking feel like I'm sure you guys can relate to this. So the worst part about a mini cut is like you're depleted, but you haven't really lost any body fat because, you know, it takes time. So it's like you just feel freaking tiny. Skinny cut, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so that's the worst part. I'm just like, man, dude, I feel like, you know, uh, but I also feel like, you know, you, you make a good point, Brandon, about how like it's also about how you, you know, even if we're doing everything perfectly in terms of like when we're gaining weight, you know, maybe we're going at a slow rate, we're lifting weights, we're staying active. I feel like still at the end of the day, you keep pushing that after a while, you're going to start to run into some issues. It's just that I feel like when it comes to weight gain, it's important to do those things because you really slow down, you know, how bad it can get. Um, if, if that makes sense, what I'm trying to say there, but that's, those are just a few things I wanted to say on that. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think it's, it's really uh, important to hit on these type of things because we can't push any one stimuli or any one phase for an extended period of time and, and expect a different or a better result. And so just like we would, we often preach, I know all three of us have done this, where we tell our clients that they can't stay in a diet down state for, you know, eternity. You can't be in a deficit forever. And there are so many people that come to us that just want to be like in a calorie deficit or, you know, they don't want to be in a calorie deficit, but they want to be in a fat loss phase for like, until they get to their end goal. And they don't realize that this is a phasic process, which sometimes we have to break up into chunks. So what I mean by that is I, I have a client right now that I've been working with for the course of a, a year and a half. And he, over that course, he's lost 70 pounds, but we've done it in, in sections. So he would have a 16 week fat loss phase. Then we would do, you know, at one point we did a uh, four week maintenance phase. We went back into a deficit to get him ready for a specific event. Then from there, I did a reverse diet where he was, you know, in a reverse dieting phase for 12 weeks before we went into a maintenance phase and we let him, you know, accumulate some more tissue, but maintain a much lower body fat percentage than he had previously because he had excess adiposity originally. And so just like we would break up a long-term 
fat loss goal. So this person had 70 pounds to lose. That's an enormous amount. It was about 20% of his body weight to lose. Just like we would break that up. The same thing with muscle building and muscle building is such a long process. We can't just expect, so say for instance, Jeff, you you put on 10% of your body weight within this past building phase. That's a great amount. And actually that's kind of like my limit for fat loss. So I would even, I could even say that that might be my limit for gaining phases. So usually I don't let people get you know above, and I'll tell you this honestly for my competitors, I don't let them get above 15% over their stage weight. However, I don't let them get before the prep starts over 10% over their stage weight. And the reason for that is because I don't want this to be an elongated process where they're really suffering. So what I'll do is I'll do a prep before the prep where we drop a few pounds previous to that. Then we maintain, we really improve health markers and get them primed so that their body is extremely responsive when we go into the long-term deficit, which is going to get them into stage condition. And so within that, we have to, we should always look at this as a phasic process where we go in and out of things, not you know like we're constantly switching the goal or what we're going after. However, we're doing things until we see that they're getting a little bit less effective than we would want them to be, or we would expect them to be. We switch essentially the goal to be able to, I guess, potentiate our ability to get better in the subsequent phase. I've seen over and over in fat loss phases too, that 10% mark is right around always where it just gets to be so much more of a grind for people. People just start who would struggle to hear so much more. And there's so many times too, where a client wants to keep grinding it out. But at the same time, it's like, yo, we keep just having these instances where adherence is just so much harder. And I, I think that's I think that's a very, very good rule of thumb. You said 15 percent over like so, stage yeah. weight. On, yeah. So, for instance, um, so that'd be like I've had competitors for me. Yeah. So, so honestly, I've had competitors. So for instance, I'll, I'll just give you a, a great example is Anthony Scalza, um, mm-hmm. is one of my long-term clients has been with me for three years. I brought him, you guys both know him personally. I brought him through multiple contest preps over the years. And what I would do is I would always let his, his weight gravitate between 215 and 225. That is where I see him having the most muscularity. His nutrient partitioning is still in a good place. His lab markers look good. However, he's starting to edge up into the point where we may be too far away from being able to implement a prep and do it in one foul swoop. And that's never my goal. So always what I would do is a, uh, what I uh, refer to with my contest prep clients and what I would refer to with say a lifestyle client as a primer phase. And so with mm-hmm. him, I, I would utilize a prep before the prep and we would get about 10 to 12. And, and one year we even got 15 pounds off before the prep ever started. And that was in about an eight week phase. So it was an accelerated rate of gain because he was at a higher level of adipose. And you guys both know kind of my philosophy on fat loss. Let's go a little bit faster in terms of a faster rate of gain off the front because because we're at our highest level of body fat. We have the most calories to play with because we've been in a surplus. So we have essentially a uh, inflated maintenance you know, level. And we also have a lot of motivation. We have a lot of energy in the system, a lot of energy in, in general. So let's utilize that when it's best and then slow down the rate of loss as we get leaner and leaner. And so what I would do with him and I've done with many other athletes is done a prep before the prep. I'm trying to improve insulin sensitivity. I'm improving their health markers. I'm also decreasing adiposity, getting them to a lower body fat percentage. And then I'm going to hold them there for eight to 10 weeks. And sometimes I'm able with certain individuals to recomp them within that process around that same weight. But then we're within 10, about 10 to 12% of striking distance from stage. So in Anthony's case, usually the, all we would have to lose within his preps was around 20 pounds on average, which was a lot less than the 35 pounds we would have, or the 30 pounds we would have had to lose if we did it in one, you know, one dieting process, which would have most likely led to, and I've seen this with other individuals um, who have done it in a different fashion where they do say like a 24, 30 week prep and they have 35, 40 pounds. And I've done, honestly, years ago, I had a, a client, Arturo Turner, who's a pro now. I took him into his first pro debut season. I needed to take 
150 pounds off him in one in one contest prep. That was 20% of his body weight because he had gotten very large in the offseason without working with me. And so that was a that was a grind. I'll tell you, he was even dieting into his peak week, which is something I, you know, Jeremiah knows that my process is I get people ready two weeks early and I I, I feed them up into the show or into the shoe. And we weren't able to utilize that. However, his next contest prep, I started his prep at 227. He got on stage at 218. He lost nine pounds in that process of 16 <laughs> weeks because we had learned because when he came from 252 to 202, he lost a lot of tissue in the process because I had to keep pushing him. However, he had accumulated. We did such a good from that 202 to that 225 or 227 that he got up into his building phase. We had done such a productive lean building phase where he accumulated very little fat, but put on a lot of lean muscle tissue where we didn't have a lot of fat to lose first and foremost. And we didn't have to utilize, you know, either an extended deficit or an aggressive deficit. So his training, you know, um, his training intensity, his training volume stayed at a really high level. So he was able to maintain all of his tissue. He brought a much better physique. He was more filled out. I was able to feed him up into the show and he had a much better look on stage and also a much better experience. So we have to, you know, there's both sides of the coin. There's many roads that lead to Rome. So anyone can get in great shape and they could suffer their way down to there. But I would rather take an approach, which is a more, little bit more calculated uh, in terms of our approach to it and give us more time and build in these different phasic approaches. So a primer phase or a prep before the prep phase, then a maintenance phase or a health phase, and then go into a prep phase where we have a goal, but it's not outside of our reach because that's another thing from a physiological perspective, whether you're a competitor or not, if you're a lifestyle client, but you just have this goal of getting ready for your wedding or getting ready for a photo shoot. If you know it's so far away, it's really going to be defeating on those weeks or those days that you don't see progress. When we only have, we're within striking distance and we know that we're close. Like for instance, Jeremiah, when you had canceled the initial trip that you had, and we we decided to transition from a mini cut to a photo shoot prep, we knew you, we had already gotten you lean. So were you right. in photo shoot shape yet? You were close, but we knew, I, I told you right off the bat, I know I can get you in much better shape. And we were able to do that because we had the time and we we're also in a great position to do so. How many weeks did you take that dude down 50 pounds then? Uh, that was about 24 weeks. So it was an accelerated rate of gain. He was losing 1% of body weight. Goddamn. <laughs> That's yeah, brutal. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, Jeremiah, I'm with you and, and Brandon too. Like, I, I do find that that 10% mark is where people tend to like. That's where it's like, do you really want to keep pushing it? It's probably best to just take you know some some time away from from dieting there at that point. Do you guys find like a when they get to that point, is there a particular uh, time frame that you feel like is good to get them out of a deficit uh, at that point, or is it just really individual on in the person? I feel like typically. Man, it's pretty individual. I feel like for most people, if they want to push past that point, I feel like like a, a shorter diet break, one to two weeks, I typically will apply more in like a smaller, like, hey, maybe we've lost closer to like five to seven percent. We're starting to see adherence slip. There are some situations, I mean, I'll say almost always though, like what I found, I, I base it off of how the client is feeling, but I find typically like at least a month away from that to focus yeah. on just eating up. And I mean, sometimes it's even needed to be longer than that. It, I think it kind of also depends on how long of a journey they have in front of them. And of course, like if we're prepping for like a photo shoot or something like that, and it's like, hey, we just don't have the time to do that. Um, I mean, we lost more than 10% of your body weight in your prep, your last prep. But I guess we already had pre-planned. We split that up into two chunks, didn't we? I think it was all just one. I might have had like a diet break in there. I think like I, I had a two-week diet break in the middle that we had kind of pre-planned. So, I mean, it'll, it'll, I think it depends on how much further you have to go as well for someone where it's like, we have a lot, a lot longer to go. Like we have another, let's say we're down 30 pounds. We have another like 25 pounds to go. That's someone I'm going to give a little bit longer because I think that can just feel daunting. 
Whereas I probably would err closer to that, like one to two weeks, depending on how that person is feeling. If it's like, okay, we're aiming to lose, like, let's say we have five more pounds or seven more pounds, but we're really at the point where it's a grind. We can just get in, like take the diet break and then get back to it shortly. But I think it's generally, I base it mostly on that, but it's so hard to answer that as far as like, this is how I would always do it. Yeah. So I have, I have two huge considerations that I always make with this because I've been through many journeys with individuals and then also brought them through subsequent fat loss phases. So the first thing is their starting body weight and, and they're starting, you know, what we could estimate as their body fat percentage. So I've worked with individuals that are 300 pounds and really could utilize losing 30% of their body weight. So 10%, yes, it's still an enormous amount. They lost 30 pounds. However, they're still about 20% away from being in say like lifestyle lean. So they're not at an, a body fat percentage, which is dangerously low or dangerously low. They're not in a state of low energy availability or relative energy deficiency. So I'm looking at two things. I'm looking at where are they coming from? Where did we get them within that first fat loss phase? And then in addition to that, I'm looking at what is their current body fat percentage at the end of that first fat loss phase, as well as their calorie intake. So where have we started and where are we at? Is this someone that is very, say, metabolically resistant, where they are someone that is extremely adaptive in terms of their capacity to adapt down in a deficit where I've had to drop their calories quite substantially and they're not losing at what I would expect to be a rate of gain, even though they're adherent to the program. You know, it's just stuff like unconscious neat reductions. They are just someone that, you know, maybe thyroid down regulation. I'm looking at lab work. If I'm seeing things get down regulated, you know, I'm going to have to bring them out of that. So we can't just dig a hole and then, you know, put a little sand in there and then decide to keep digging and just get them more and more into a ditch. But we really have to look as at each client and seeing where are they at? Where did they start at? Where did we get them to? And what state are they in both physiologically and psychologically at that point? Because there are certain individuals that they're very headstrong. And they also, that first 30 pounds to us, that seems like a really large amount of weight because we're generally not 30 to 40 or 60 pounds above where we would need to be to be lean. So if any of us lost 30 pounds, I mean, like I would look sick to be honest with you. Jeremiah, you lose 30 pounds, man. Like you didn't even lift. You know what I mean? Like you're done. You know, anyways, look right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so with that, we have to realize that what is, you know, we have to look at absolute versus relative. What is that amount that that person has lost? And so for some individuals that have excess adiposity or they're overweight or in the obese category, 30 pounds, yes, it's a large amount. It's a huge victory, but they got a lot more that they can give. Whereas there's a lot of individuals, and this is where I find myself in, you know, in terms of the clients that I attract and that I work with, I work with a lot of people that have a large and extensive history of dieting where they really don't have that much weight to lose. And psychologically, they want to keep pushing because they want to get back to, you know, looking like they did when they previously stepped on stage, or they want to get back to the leanest version themselves, or they had this weight metric in their head of getting back to the weight that they were in high school. And I really find this a lot of times with my female clients that have 15, 20 years of a history of dieting. And that's where I have to sit down and tell them, you know, and have this conversation with them. Yes, I understand that you had the drive and motivation to do this, but it's not going to set you up for long-term success. If we only do a two-week diet break, like I want to get those people into a state of maintenance calories and increase their energy availability for a minimum of eight weeks. So if they've been dieting for 12 weeks, I'm looking at two-thirds of that going back and getting them into a state of abundance, teaching them how to live at maintenance. Because here's the thing with a lot of those individuals, especially with people that have a long history of of dieting in an improper fashion where it was either they're going their foot on the gas or they're on the other side of the equation and they're jumping off the rails in terms of eating everything. 
they never had consistency in things and they never learned how to live at maintenance. So although doing a diet break throughout the course of say a dieting or a fat loss dieting phase is great to learn how to live at maintenance for short stints. I really like utilizing maintenance phases to teach this person, listen, I've gotten you 10% down. You're substantially leaner than you were when you came to me. I want to teach you how to live in this body, appreciate this body also, and also do so in a state where you're not feeling the cognitive, the mental, and the physical restrictions that come along with being in a deficit. And then you get more comfortable at this. We'll see how your, how your physiology responds to it. We'll see how your biofeedback improves. How is your libido? How is your menstrual cycle regulation? How are your energy levels, your sleep quality, all these different biofeedback markers. And then we'll decide if we push for more. But often what I end up finding is a lot of times, if that person didn't have a lot of weight to lose to begin with, we got them lean, their, their lifestyle lean. They just wanted to push for more. So I have people that come to me and I always have this, this conversation with people. They want to get competitor lean because they see what I've done with competitors over the years, but they don't want to compete. And there is no situation. And it's not that I'm against what anyone's goals is, but here's the thing. Getting to a stage, like to stage condition is not only unhealthy physiologically, but also psychologically. And if you don't need to go there for a sport or for something that you have a date on a calendar, I don't really believe many should go there because it's not only the decrements in how you're going to feel during that process, but you're never going to look at your body the same. And I had this conversation with one of my clients earlier today, uh, who was a former competitor who has stopped competing, but I, I've coached him during his competitive days, as well as off, uh, off season and into his you know professional career where he doesn't compete whatsoever and has no interest in it. And he made a comment to me and asked me how I felt about my own body image. Like now that I'm years removed from competing and I'll never look at my same self the same. Luckily, I have a lot of confidence in who I am as a person. I realize that I don't just identify myself by what my body looked like or what it looks like now. However, I know so many people in today's society that they are so attached to their body image and have a poor relationship with their body image that if they got into a stage of stage shape, they have a poor relationship with their body image now thinking that they're not good enough. But if they got into that state, they think it would be better. They think that that's going to be the solution to their, their issues or their, their problems. However, if they got that lean, they would never want to let it go. And here's the thing. You can't stay in stage condition. You know, there's women, most of them are losing their menstrual cycles. There's a, uh, actually a case study on a female bodybuilder who did a contest prep and it took her 71 weeks to regain her menstrual cycle function. However, within that time period, they charted her entire post uh, diet recovery. She had already regained all the body fat that she originally had, you know, from where she started. So they, they did a pre-prep phase. They looked at her, you know, and they followed her throughout the entire course of her prep. So say she started at 25% body fat, she got to 14%, whatever it may be. And then they followed her back out 71 weeks. In Within that 71 weeks, she had already regained all the body fat she had lost in that prep and more. And she still had yet to regain her menstrual cycle. She still had signs of low energy availability and a lot of the physiological ramifications of having gotten that lean. And if that is not something that is part of your career or part of your sport, I don't believe you should push yourself there, especially because of the implications that it could possibly have on your psychology and the way that you look at yourself. Because Jeremiah, Jeff, I'm sure you guys can attest to this with me. Dude, I've been under 5% body fat many of times. There is never a time that I'm going to look at myself now that I've, I'm completely done with competing for the most part, that I don't look at myself and say, man, I've been a lot more shredded than that. It's always this criticism. I'm lucky that I'm a very objective person. I can divorce myself from that and say, listen, that was a phase of my life where that was my everything. And I don't need that. I, you know, I love helping other people fulfill their goals and other people get on stage. I don't need that to feel like I'm accomplishing things, but I will tell you that I'll never look at my, my physique the same based on what I've looked like before. Yeah, no, I, I can, those are some good points you bring up. Uh, definitely. If you're just trying to get lifestyle lean, you definitely don't want to get as shredded as you would. And then also, like you said, you, once you do get that lean, it's like, you definitely 
do look at yourself differently. Like, for example, when I, you know, in this last building phase, when I got to 170, I felt like I had put on a pretty good amount of like uh, body fat, which again, I knew that was the case and I'm fine with it. But like, you know, I talked to my fiance and she was just like, you haven't really gained it. Like you're still lean. And I'm just like, you know, it, it definitely does kind of mess with you a little bit there for sure. So I can totally relate to that. Cool. We better wrap it up here, Brandon. I think you got to run, right? <laughs> I do, guys. I think we're like 10 minutes late. <laughs> it's all good, guys. Always a pleasure. Yep, absolutely. Love chatting with you guys. And we'll save those questions uh, for the next one, as always. <laughs> all right. Catch all you right, guys. guys. Talk to you soon. Peace.